Hello, and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Alec Patton about his book, Work That Matters, The Teacher's Guide to Project-Based Learning. Alec, welcome to the show. And thank you very much. It's great to be here. Alec, I was wondering if you could, uh, if we could begin the interview by you telling us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. So I am a 10th grade humanities teacher at High Tech High Chula Vista, which is uh, one of the high tech high schools in San Diego County. And we were right um, on the Mexican border. And before that, uh, I've been here for, this is my second year. Before that, I was at High Tech High North County for two years. And before that, I was living in England and working at the innovation unit. It was actually when I was there that I wrote Work That Matters. So how did you come to write Work That Matters? So I was, it, it goes back to when I was doing my PhD. I did my PhD at the University of Sheffield, and I found that I liked research fine, and I, I, I was interested in it, but what I really loved doing was teaching, um, which is a sort of a strange position to be in when you're getting your PhD. Um, and some people tell, people will genuinely tell you, and all the stories that people tell you stop paying attention to teaching because you'll never get a job with that. Those are true. People literally say that to you. Um, and tell you to focus on your research. But there was also, I was very fortunate that there was an organization called the Center for Inquiry-Based Learning in the Arts and Social Sciences at the university that was a briefly very well-funded um, organization dedicated to looking across disciplines at learning through inquiry and progressive education. And so I worked with them a great deal. I did a project um, looking at different ways that undergraduates could be integrated into postgraduate research, which doesn't tend to happen very often. Um, I ran a program in which undergraduates were trained as oral history interviewers, and they their interviews now are held by the British Library in one of their collections. Um, so I was very interested at the university level in this kind of this kind of education, and so because of that, I was hired by the Innovation Unit to work on a project called Learning Futures, and it was through coming to that project where we were working with a group of twelve secondary schools across Britain that I became involved then with High Tech High um, and with writing Work That Matters. So your book is a guide for teachers on how to do project-based learning. What exactly is project-based learning and why is a guide for teachers even necessary? So project-based learning, um, the way the my basic definition for myself of project-based learning and when I'm doing something, what makes it a project, is that it's something that starts out with an open inquiry of some kind and ends up with a tangible product. So last year we wrote a series of, um, of science fiction short stories. Um, every, every one of my students wrote one. We explored uh, the science of science fiction in biology class. Um, we read and studied uh, models of different science fiction short stories from the great science fiction writers. We looked at Bradbury, we looked at others. And from that, um, the students wrote, they drafted, they redrafted, they showed each other their work, they critiqued it, and we ultimately put it into a bound book, which was for sale, and we launched it at the um, Mysterious Galaxy. And Mysterious Galaxy is the only uh, science fiction-focused bookstore in San Diego. And so the components to me that made that a project, I mean, lots of people, lots of English teachers have written science fiction stories for their students, probably fewer science teachers, but that happens as well. What makes it a project is that you are writing it for an audience. So it's you know, they, they knew from the beginning, the whole team knew from the beginning that we were going to end up publishing a book and selling it in 
a, uh, a book in, in an actual bookstore. Um, and they, that kind of drove that, that drives the energy up on it. That drives the focus up on, on the project. And the, um, so, so then you have to have multiple drafts because you can't just say, oh yeah, let's just write this thing. It'll take us a couple hours. Let's go with it. And so they put huge amounts of work into it. Um, we scaffolded it, we structured it to help them through the process of writing it. Um, and so it's that it's, it's those, uh, that public exhibition, that tangible product, um, the multiple drafts and the critique to me are what makes a project a project. Now, I, I still think that some teachers confuse project-based learning with other progressive educational practices. Um, I hear people lumping it in with inquiry-based learning or problem-based learning. Um, what do you think separates project-based learning from these other approaches? Sure. I would say the tangible product. So I think you can do an, an inquiry um, that ends with you reporting to your teacher, your findings, you can, um, so if you did, so for example, if I did an inquiry into, um, how, uh, if I did an inquiry into, um, air pollution levels around the, uh, around the school, um, and I wanted to find out about that. And I went out, I took measurements, um, and I ended up putting together, uh, a report according to a template from a teacher that gave gave the this so they gave the information and my findings and I maybe presented that in front of my class that would could be a really high quality quality inquiry I think if I took that and I worked with if I looked at um, what a uh, environmental science student in an undergraduate or postgraduate level would do to present their research and I created a poster in the way that they would create that research poster. Um, and I worked with them on that. I, I worked with professionals on that and I created something that is what a professional would create. And I displayed that, um, at an exhibition, an exhibition event at which people, professionals attended and looked at it and talked about it with me. Um, I would say that would turn that into a project. So it's that to me, it's that tangible product. So it sounds like a, both inquiry-based learning and project-based learning begin with questions. Yes. And you can do a lot of research with both but um, it's what is what is the end goal? Yeah, so the project, um, the problem is authentic, and the purpose is to give something or present something to a broader audience. Yeah, and I think every high quality project is also an inquiry, but every high quality inquiry is not also a project. I see. Um, so in your book, uh, you focus on work being done um, at two networks of schools. One is High Tech High here in San Diego. And the other is it are the Learning Futures Schools in the United Kingdom. Can you tell us more about these two organizations? What separates their approach to PBL from other networks of schools? Sure. So for the first to say is Learning Futures, which I can say, I'll just say a little bit about. That was a specific time-bound project where the goal was to um, develop radical approaches to education that made it more engaging for secondary schools. So the schools that worked together were were independent of each other before they started. They worked together on that project, and I think some of them still communicate, but it's those ties are informal. Um, and so there's some very interesting work there, which is and it's in the book, and you can find out about it. But it's not like it's not a group. Whereas High Tech High is a um, is a group of I think it's now 13 charter schools going from kindergarten through 12th grade, um, all in San Diego County across uh, three campuses, one in the north, one kind of in the middle, one in the south. And those those schools are focused on 
social equity and project-based learning, um, kind of to an, to an equal extent. Those are the two uh, the the two key features of, of those schools. But um, as far as pedagogy goes, um, project-based learning is the heart of what happens at High Tech High in a way that, I mean, I sort of I, I obviously. I'm biased working here, but I would say I don't know of any school, other schools that I would say have as completely thoroughgoing a commitment to learning through projects. So um, for the learning future schools, that was something new for them. Uh, maybe temporarily they were experimenting with project-based learning. Were they influenced by the work at High Tech High at that time? Yeah, and that actually came about. So what happened, the, the time frame of it, was that I came on to Learning Futures when it was already a going concern, when it was already happening as a project. And David Jackson, one of the people working on the project, a really uh, fantastic um, researcher and a form, um, consultant and designer of learning who had been a head teacher in England, um, had left that and rather than retiring, had started traveling around the world working with um, people in progressive education all over. And he went to high tech high and he's, he's a profoundly enthusiastic man. He came back from high tech high saying, everybody's got to see this. This is just, this is just absolutely amazing. You have to, um, you, you have to see this, you have to see what they're doing. And I just became incredibly excited about it. Um, and we ended up, we found that a lot of what we were trying to do was being done at high tech high. And so that became a kind of a, for, not for all the schools, but for a lot of the schools, a real focus. And we came out as a group, the first, um, the first session that I really worked on writing this book with um, people at High Tech High, we came out as a, as a group with um, myself and a few other people from the innovation unit, but more importantly, teachers from, I think about 10 schools all came out to experience and spend a week in working in High Tech High. And, uh, that's something I hear about a lot is that people will come from all over the country, all over the world to visit high tech high schools and then they'll go back and they'll be super excited to try and bring project based learning to wherever they're working. What is it that you think they're seeing or they're hearing from students that uh, gets them so excited? Well, I think what I can describe for myself is I just want for me personally, as a guy collecting material to write a book, I just wanted to do amazing things being in high tech high. I just felt energized by being there. That was what really brought me back. And it wasn't initially, I thought, I don't, I don't want to be a teacher, but I want to work at high tech high. My initial thing was, I just want to spend time in this place. Cause I feel energized. I feel inspired by being here. Um, and so I think that there, there's a big thing with that. And that goes across to the students. You, you pick that up with the students. Um, you pick that up with the teachers, the sense of collegiality, the sense of common purpose. Um, and I think it just, uh, I think on a very visceral level, I think a lot of people just come in here and go, wow, I want to do great things. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's true from kindergartners to, um, you know, retired teachers coming out and, mm -hmm. and seeing it. It just has, it has that kind of feeling about it. So in the book, you discuss the foundations of project-based learning and you write that exhibition multiple drafts and critique are the most important components, um, even more important than uh, going on field trips or integrating different subjects or spending a long time on a project. Why are exhibition and multiple drafts and critique so important? 
So the first thing is that as te- we, we exert tremendous gravity in our classroom as teachers. We are the, the, the classroom orbits around us, whether we like it or not. And to a great extent, we shouldn't like it because that's not, that's not a helpful way to learn. Um, it's going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it, but it's not um, learning to please an individual is not a good way to become an adult. Um, and so, so the, so the first, so when you, an exhibition takes shifts the grad, the center of gravity away from the teacher and means that you have an audience that isn't just the teacher and it take and, and, and brings this idea of, um, and, and means that you can be a collaborator, that it becomes not about like, what are you going to do for me? It's what are we going to do so that we do something great for this audience? Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, and it raises, it, it both raises and changes the stakes for a student. When students really know, once, and you don't always come in with the exhibition venue totally figured out, but once students know what that is, once you say, hey, we're going to be performing, we perform plays at a local theater called the Onstage Playhouse. And once you say, hey, this is going to happen, at this local theater, it changes things for everybody. Um, it also brings the community in, brings parents in, which doesn't happen that often in mm-hmm. high school, uh, and is really powerful. Um, in order, if you're going to create work that's worthy of exhibition, you have to do multiple drafts. It just wouldn't be to make the first draft of something and say, "Okay, here we go, done, let's exhibit it." Would just be a waste of everyone's time. So the exhibition drives the multiple drafts, but the multiple drafts also just as adults, anything we do that's valuable, anything we do that's worthwhile, we draft multiple times, we show to different people, we get feedback on. That's what we do. The idea of a first draft culture in school is just perverse, I think. And um, I would also add to that that what I, I spent my time going through school with getting feedback, sometimes very thorough feedback, on essays and pieces of writing that I wrote, which I was then supposed to apply to the next essay or piece of writing mm-hmm. I wrote. It is unbelievably cognitively difficult to say, I'm going to give you some feedback on this thing. In a few weeks' time or a week's time, you're going to do something possibly completely different, and I would like you to apply the feedback I gave to you to this next thing. I actually don't give feedback on final drafts anymore or or rarely give feedback on final drafts because I just don't think that's a particularly useful time to get that kind of feedback unless a student really seeks it out. Um, where I really get feedback is on the first draft, the early drafts, because to sit down with the same thing and say, okay, I'm going to, you know, take on board these questions and this advice and these ideas that my teacher is taking and incorporate them into that thing. It's a much more efficient way of learning. It just makes a lot more sense. Um, and then the final thing is the critique because, um, again, I give feedback, but if I'm the only one giving feedback, um, the students aren't benefiting from each other, and I'm going insane because I'm checking all of my students' work over and over again. And It's not a healthy situation for anybody. Whereas with critique, with the idea of making your work public with the rest of the group, you can give advice to other people. You can make suggestions um, about people's work, and high-tech-high students tend to be very fluent in doing that. But actually, that's not the most valuable thing because nobody's that great at giving feedback and I would never walk. I would never say I need feedback on this. I tell the students, I'd never say I need feedback on this. I'm going to go into a room of randomly selected people, my age and um, be paired up with somebody and get their feedback. And that's how I'm going to move forward. That's not a good way to get feedback. What's actually much more valuable is if I go into that room and I go, Oh, that's a really interesting idea. Oh, and look how they did that. Oh, and it never occurred to me that I could do this. Um, so everybody, everybody gets to, 
steal ideas from each other in the best possible way. So everybody, the most able kid on any given assignment, everybody's able to learn from what that kid's doing and able to do. There's there there's this kind of like there's a secret sauce thing that happens in high school where some a certain number of kids it just doesn't occur to them. It doesn't. It's it's not in their experience of of doing things or seeing other people's stuff to do a particular thing. They're never going to think of that on their own. Um, and then they suddenly look at something, another student who has a different life experience, who has a different experience of things, and they see, oh, that student's done that. And now, rather than maybe figuring it out for themselves over a long period of time, they can just go, oh, I'm going to do something a bit like what they just did. Now, I mean, you can call that copying and get stressed out about that if you really want to, but I think that's a really that would be a really perverse approach to education. When a student's able to say, "Oh wow, they did that cool thing. I want to try doing something like that." I find that incredibly exciting as a teacher. Um, so, I think I mean I think if you're doing work that it's possible to copy, there's a problem with your fundamental design. I mean, I when with the things like the science fiction short stories, you know, every nobody I never had a problem with someone going, oh, I'm just going to copy this thing from this person's story and just use it. That never came up. But what I did have was, oh, yeah, you can have it in, you know, in in third person rather than I was writing in first person. I could do it in third person. That's a great idea. I want to try that. Or, um, oh, I really like the way that the perspective shifts there. I can do that. Um, it opens up tremendous amounts of possibility for everybody to develop. And it just uses it's it's a better it's a better use of all of our cognitive capacity share it out that way. And to take that, that example about uh, writing your story in the third person as opposed to the first person, do you find that students are more likely to notice those things when reading the work of each other rather than only reading uh, the work of published authors? I think I would say that's a really interesting question. I think so. I can't kind of point to a, if that feels right to me. Um, and what I would say, what, what definitely happens is that there's a level of polish that makes it hard to experience something as a maker. If you're looking at something else, if you're looking at, you know, it, I mean, a, a good example, and I'm not particularly adept at working with my hands. This thing I'd, I'd love to develop and do more of, but I could look at, you know, I mean, I went to see a Barbara Hepworth um, exhibit. And I was just thinking of her, a great sculptor in England. I could look at tons of Barbara Hepworths. And there's not going to be a point where I go, oh, I think I could probably do that. There exactly. we go. But when I see even, you know, Barbara Hepworth that's in process, suddenly I go, oh, I can see how this could happen. And if I go and I look at work that somebody else has done or I can see the seams, I can see how it's put together, suddenly I have access to that. And I think when you read a short story by Ray Bradbury, you, you're looking at this kind of perfect thing. And it doesn't, you know, he doesn't want you to notice, oh, Look what he did with time there. That's that, you know, he, he isn't writing. He wants you to not notice. That's what would, would part of what makes the story work is the fact that all of these little tricks happen. If you see somebody who's using one of those tricks for the first time, it's often really glaringly obvious where that trick is. So it makes it more obvious to you. So I think, yeah, absolutely. You can see where the bits, the bits, the joins, you can see where the stuff stuck together. It's not seamless when you're looking at a, um, another student's work. And that, that lack of seamlessness is, is really powerful. So I'm hearing you uh, articulate a lot of benefits to doing project-based learning. I'm hearing you say that it's maybe more accessible for students. It's motivating. It may make uh, better use of the teacher's time uh, because they're not put in the position of grading or giving feedback on all of students' assignments. And um, it also allows them to do some perspective-taking, maybe build some empathy by continually being exposed to the work of their classmates. kind of puts them in a 
vulnerable place and uh, could perhaps build a stronger classroom culture. Um, all of these things, the exhibition, the drafts, the critique, must take a lot of time. And this would be time that you'd otherwise spend on reading more books or discussing more topics. Um, so what do you see as the trade-offs involved in doing projects and why are those trade-offs worth making? So uh, the first thing I would say is I think I want to I wanna, um, say on the books thing, you can, um, well, two things to say about books. One thing is that like a lot of teenagers graduate high school without ever finishing a book. And we talk, when we talk about reading more books, what we mean is putting more books in front of people. Um, that does not, those are not the same thing. And I think, and, and um, I, a lot of reading happens in my class. It's something I really work with. It's something that I think I'm able to do because of the structure of project-based learning is to really look at how we read and look at reading strategies. And I'm, I'm not, you know, plenty of teachers who don't do project-based learning do this. When you slow down with your reading, when you create opportunities for students to read at a different pace, depending on what they're reading, when you when you break away from the idea of quantity, you can actually get into fine-tuning technique. Um, so I think so I think you can I think there's a tremendous amount of reading that happens in project-based learning and even even reading books, which I think there's this kind of sense that no one reads books in project-based schools. And I would say that's just simply not true. Um, what I would say is the trade-off is that you are going to memorize fewer facts. Mm -hmm. But anybody who says, you know, I, want, I did AP European history, everyone should do AP European history, my answer would be, who is your favorite general in the Crimean Warrior? Mm -hmm. Tell me about tell me about all your your happy memories of um, learning about the English Civil War. Like I vague and I say this because I vaguely remember I took AP Euro, I took AP US. I vaguely remember learning about these things. Everything I remember about history I learned as an adult. Um, there's so little that I remember from high school, and I'm pretty intellectually confident. I have a PhD. I don't even remember stuff that happened that I learned about my PhD. I became an expert. Briefly in Malaysian history, I had to for my PhD, none of which I could now tell you. Um, it's just this idea that um, we will just bank the content. I said this earlier, we were, talk we were talking about content. I said, look, my feeling is there's two kinds of content. There's the idea of learning the thing that you need to know now in order to do the project you're doing. And then there's the idea of learning about packing away a bunch of stuff into your mental library so that if in 20 years you suddenly need it, you can recall it. If you have that brain, I want that brain, but I don't have that brain. If I, I can't, I don't learn things that I can then just recall in 15 years. That's not the way my brain works there. It, it's use it or lose it. So this idea of we should just learn a bunch of facts because we might find them useful in the future. I find utterly preposterous. I just, if it were, if, if the choice were either learn a bunch of um, learn either learn a bunch of facts about history and remember them forever or spend more time on doing a project, then I would say, wow, there's probably an interesting discussion to be had. And I would still say the project stuff is more valuable because I just I don't there's no one size fits all of learning everything. But the fact is, we're not talking about memorizing a bunch of facts that we remember forever because no one's brain works that way. So I feel like the trade off is between developing the range of cognitive and non-cognitive skills you develop doing a project, um, having extended discussions, Socratic seminars, reading and analyzing, taking a lot of time over text, or memorizing a bunch of things that you will forget within weeks. And I don't, I mean, that just seems 
bizarre that anyone would wonder what the trade-off was. It, yeah, so it's a bit of a false choice. Yeah. So um, when discussing the protocols for critique and project tunings in the book, you mentioned norms developed by Ron Berger and High Tech High. Yeah. So uh, Berger tells his students to be kind, specific, and helpful in their feedback. And High Tech High borrows those suggestions for teachers and also adds share the air and be hard on content, soft on people. Yeah. Why are those norms even necessary? Um, and are there particular norms that students and teachers struggled to observe in your experience? So students and teachers struggle to observe all the norms. Human beings struggle to observe all the norms. And that's why we have them. Well, I can't remember what I was just reading. But I was just reading something that was talking about effective groups and, and how effective groups work. And one of the things about how effective groups work is that they create the conditions that mean that the their better angels are are what went out went out with them. You can't just you have to design your way into working effectively. Um, this is something that I would say. Um, lots of people, and particularly teenagers, um, find a difficult idea to accept that actually there are things that kind of feel fake and feel inauthentic mm -hmm. that will mean that everyone does a better job. Um, I think most people find that tough. Um, and we have, but, and, and lots of teachers um, will tell you that, you know, they don't like protocols. Plenty of teachers, even, even teachers at High Tech High may say that some, you know. Yeah, and what is the problem with protocols? They feel inauthentic. Yeah, that it, that it can feel inauthentic. It feel it can feel stilted. Um, all of it is true, but being authentic sometimes is really unhelpful. And mm. I can authentically think someone's being an idiot, and it won't be helpful for me to share that in that context. And you're not going to help that. Person. Anyway, I'm not going to help that person. Sure. Yeah, and so um, I had an experience that really in my very first year of teaching where I was having a project tuned, a tuning is kind of critique for teachers where you bring a draft of a project and there's a very tight protocol for, uh, for getting, um, getting help with that and developing it. And the protocol works great. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the, of that, of that particular protocol in particular. And, but the first time doing this, the, you you say there's a point where people ask clarifying questions and probing questions. And then, they talk your everybody else in the group who's uh, tuning your project speaks without you in the circle. And the facilitator is supposed to say, let's start off with warm feedback, warm feedback in the sense of what, what's strong, what's positive about this. And the facilitator didn't say that. And it was honestly like hyenas tearing apart a gazelle corpse. It was, and it was utterly devastating to me. I came out of it real. I'm, Really, I came out of it just feeling like I want to go home. I don't want to have anything to do with any of this. It was just awful. And I've always remembered that, that it was that facilitators just didn't say leader the warm feedback. Mm -hmm. And if they had, I think it would have been a completely different experience. But you look at something with flaws and you want to, your instinct is to fix it. Your instinct is to go, oh, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. Oh, you can totally fix that. You know, everyone in the room had more experience than me. They all have the capacity to make my project better, but just having this thing where I'd put this thing in front of them and they just went, Oh, that's wrong. That's wrong. Oh, that'll never, never do that. Oh my God. What were you even thinking with that? Just meant that I felt, I mean, I just felt horrible. Like mm -hmm. I just, just physically awful. So I've always remembered that. Um, and I think that thing about, um, warm and the other thing is that 
everybody wants to be the macho guy. Everyone, male and female, everyone wants to be the macho guy who's like, just give me the bad stuff because I can take it. And all you like softies can get the warm feedback, but I don't need that. Everyone wants to be that person. No one really is. Like, um, or very few people really are. And uh, particularly when you're when when you're um, when you're less experienced, particularly when you're the least experienced person in the room. So I think um, the these we have tendencies. There are, there are serious like every aspect of the tuning protocol is in part designed to curb our unhelpful tendencies. Mm-hmm. So you start with clarifying questions because you always want to start by giving advice, and that's not actually a helpful way to begin to deal with something. And you have one of the things you say is don't ask questions which are advice in disguise. And a good facilitator will call people out because everyone does it. They go, hey, I have a question. Have you thought about doing it like this? And a good, this is a strong facilitator will say, let's, that sounds like advice to me. Let's, let's, let's hold off on that. Because that's not, that's not helpful. And everyone who's been through the process and had a really good tuning will tell you that it, it's worth it to go through that weird, somewhat stilted, somewhat inauthentic feeling process. You get better results. So the norms, the norms are there because they go against a lot of our instincts, and they need to be there because they go against a lot of our instincts. And so to say, and then, and one thing about um, sharing the air, which I'm not doing at the moment, um, but it's all right because I'm the one being interviewed, um, is uh, that I think it's a little bit nonspecific. It's very easy to feel like I'm pretty sure someone's talked in the last half an hour that wasn't me. Obviously, the air is being shared. If, if like me, you tend to be pretty verbose and loquacious. Um, so something that was said that I was said at a, um, a teacher institute I was at this summer was just the phrasing was: "If you tend to talk, wait, and if you tend to wait, talk." And it wasn't said every time; it was said at one particular moment. And people who had been completely dominant stop talking and people who hadn't spoken at all talked and it was like magic. It was like, wow, just someone just said exactly what to do. And I think there's a non-specific non-specificity about share the air and also about step up, step back, which are both phrases that are used, which I think, I think they're useful phrases, but sometimes to just say, here's exactly what to do. Wait, talk. <laughs> I just pointed while I did that. So that was, that wasn't, that wasn't great for radio, but it was, uh, but, but to, to really be clear in that way of, if you're, if you, if this is your tendency, wait. If this is your tendency, talk. Sometimes a norm really just needs to spell it out. Right, and and that's language that I want to bring into my classroom. Working with elementary school students, um, I find that you know a lot of the language I want to use to raise our discourse is not specific enough for them to to grab a hold of right away. So I love that. If you tend to wait, talk, and if you tend to talk, wait. Yeah. Um. So uh, getting back to the book, in in work that matters, you refer to. Um, Adria Steinberg's six A's of project-based learning. And those are authenticity, academic rigor, applied learning, active exploration, adult relationships, and assessment. You know, in your experience, which of these components are the hardest for teachers to do well? Um, What advice do you have for them planning and running projects? So... I can pro- probably better rather than saying teachers, possibly me would uh-huh. be a good a good one. I think the single toughest thing is the adult relationships and the adult connections. It is just it's so hard. I mean, I went I went through a thing with a we ended up canceling a hike last week because it was there was a heat advisory. But even before canceling that hike, I was going on this hike 
before any of the students did it to make sure that we could get through. And it turned out that the area that what we used to cross over, what other people who'd done this hike who told me about used to cross over, had a massive chain and a big gate up, and there was barbed wire all around, and there were signs up everywhere that said no trespassing, trespassers will be prosecuted. And eventually I ended up talking to a border guard who was just stationed there, um, and he explained to me that the park had put up all these signs, and actually all the land you could walk on, the signs were just not legally accurate. Like, it wasn't true that it was, that they didn't want people going around there, but actually it was all public land. And I had this moment of kind of going like, I can't believe, I mean, I did this hike twice, different points stomping where there were different problems. And just going, I can't believe I'm doing this when I've got so much, you know, that, you know, I was, you know, being at a project-based school, nobody, I had no, there's no curriculum set out for me. Every day I'm designing completely from scratch. No one's telling me what to teach, which is incredibly liberating, but really takes a lot of time too. Um, and so I'm designing all this stuff, which takes a pretty significant amount of time. And then I'm trying to find out where I can legally go on this hike and contacting people from the park and letting them know that a bunch of people might be coming and then letting them know that a bunch of people won't be coming because there's heat advisory and all this. And it's just unbelievably time consuming. And bringing in people, bringing in adults is really time consuming. And booking venues is really time consuming. And all of this stuff just and all of this stuff on top of all the stuff that you're doing in order to teach and in or and then you know and in order to teach a group of students at radically different levels of comprehension of different things who will all excel and struggle at different points and different things and knowing them as people and knowing what they're going to find really just disheartening and what's going to get them really excited about something so i find that i start every project with an amazing array of adults and organizations that I'm definitely going to be connecting with in a major way. And I end up sort of feeling, you know, it's a good project if one or two connections have been made. So I just think that is really, really tough. And the advice I can give, which I almost never follow, is go to the place and talk to someone in person. Um, ten, what I tend to do, what almost everyone tends to do, is send off a bunch of emails at some point late at night when you mm-hmm. decide, okay, I actually can do this now. People aren't going to reply to emails from from a total stranger. That very, very rarely happens. Um, the uh, the one exception to the fact that, that actually is um, people in the kind of science fiction community. I found that the people who I was working with in science fiction were were unbelievable and would be. I mean, I like. I'm a big fan of sci-fi anyway, but I would do a sci-fi project again just because people were so forthcoming and helpful and welcoming and supportive. Um, so. There are definitely, you'll find that some people are great, some people aren't. There's things like people who work freelance, it's really hard to tell them to come in for free because mm. that's, you know, they, they're, it's not like they're getting an income from anything else. You're asking them to do what they do for a living for free, which is quite a difficult ask to do. And so you either need to figure out how to pay them or, you know, really be very, very fortunate, but I think there's, and I mean, I even feel like kind of, it's, it, it's kind of ethically shady. I feel like if I'm asking someone to give up their time and I, and I'm not going to pay them, I feel uncomfortable with that. Sure. Um, so, so I think, I think the, the adult part is really, really tough. I think a lot of people struggle with the assessment part. I think, um, and I, we talk about assessment a lot. I think the big thing about assessment for me is recognizing that there is uh, there is a thing that you there are, there are things that you do in order for kids to work out am I being successful or not in which kids and for many kids actually I find that with apologies to Alfie Cohn I think grades can be a very quick and easy 
measurement tool for students to go, hey, am I kind of doing this? Is this, am, am I doing what am I supposed to be doing? Well, I guess if I've got a good grade, then probably I am. I actually think that's a good thing for a lot of students. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's quite among all the things I'm asking them to do. Um, I've come around to this, that to be asking a kid to kind of be making a very sophisticated and subtle and often quite fuzzy decision about how they're doing for a lot of kids. Um, it's just a really big ask that I, I think is, I think, I think they can have that in addition and go, Oh wow, I've really grown with this. But I think for a kid to be able to say with all the crazy weird stuff they're doing to be able to say, Oh, I guess I've been turning my work in um, and doing it to an acceptable level because you know, I've got an okay grade. I think that's actually a really useful little, like, I'm trying to think of the word that I would use, but heuristic. I think that's actually a useful heuristic. That is not assessment. And I think, um, and recognizing that's a different thing from assessment is really, really important. I just don't, I don't think of grading as an assessment tool. I think of grading as a tool for kids to help be able to assess on a very crude level. How am I doing? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that, I think they're useful as such. Um, assessment is really about conversations you have with students it's about the, the feedback, the written feedback that you can give to students about the work that they're in the process of creating. It's about you assessing what a student's particular needs are where a student, and what a student's strengths are and them doing that as well. And I think um, there's a wealth of ways of doing that, and it's really hard, but I don't think it's harder in project-based learning than it is in anything else. I think when people say it's really hard to assess PBL, what they mean is it's really hard to assess meaningfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and doing an equally meaningful assessment of any kind of um, work is equally difficult. But you know, you just—they're just—you just—you can't crunch quiz grades in PBL. Mm-hmm. Um, so it takes away the the late the uh, the easier and less effective forms of assessment just become impossible in PBL. But that doesn't mean it's harder to assess well. So I hear you alluding to quizzes and grades and things like that, and I think that might be surprising to a lot of teachers who don't have firsthand experience uh, teaching projects themselves to know that many of the things they may be doing in their own practice, you're still doing as well. You're incorporating those into your unique uh, long-term assignments. Yeah. Fair to say? Yeah. Um, One thing I'll say for people who kind of talk about, oh, what about exams? What about quizzes? Um, My uh, teaching partner in my first two years, Matt Leader, is a biology teacher at High Tech High North County. He would give, um, we would always, we would always do a project that was very science driven in content because, um, you can do, there's, it's much easier to do humanities in a science project than it is to attach science to a humanities project because, um, reading, writing, communicating, um, those, those skills will come up in anything and the skills of research will come up in anything. Um, and indeed history will connect to, to anything, um, in a way that biology just won't. Um, and so we would do a project. We did one project that was all about, um, coral reefs and, uh, we were actually growing coral and studying the effects of stressors on coral, working with a, uh, postdoc, um, student on the largest, it was the largest ever, um, laboratory coral experiment of its kind. Um, it happened at our high school. Um, I don't know if it's been superseded since it was a couple of years ago, but, uh, then, um, and when I say largest, I mean like largest of any professional. No, no professional lab had the capacity to do that. Um, we did because we're a high school and we got lots of people, we got lots of space. And then um, the next year we did a combination in arts and biology and uh, humanities and specifically oral history about um, disease and people's um, people. So the, the, the essential question was, how can I take control of my health destiny? 
and it was kids understanding what propensities, genetic propensities they have in their family um, and family other family history stuff about disease. For both of those, just before the exhibition, there was a massive biology exam, and it was not open note, and it was not multiple choice. And what we said for both of them was we said, you're about to have a bunch of people coming in, and you need to be able to speak with authority about all these subjects. You're not going to be able to refer to your notes then. We have to know you're capable of doing that. That's why we're doing this. So it was it was a big, in the most traditional sense, it was a very traditional exam, but it was a very traditional exam with a very authentic purpose. Um, so in the book, you offer advice for teachers who are trying to convince their principals or classroom parents of the value of project-based learning. Um, why is PBL still viewed skeptically among people who have either spent their careers in education or have chosen to send their children to project-based learning schools? So I think for parents, um, I mean, it's got to be really tough. I mean, I'm not a parent myself, but it has to be really hard to um, look and go, hey, almost everybody I know is doing this other thing, and I'm placing a bet on this thing that seems kind of crazy that I don't really understand because I wasn't educated in this way. That's got to be a scary thing for a parent. It's hard to, I mean, I nearly went to St. John's College, um, which is this, you know, 500 students who read this great books curriculum. Everyone does the same thing. It is very far out. And what I ended up kind of deciding was, well, that sounds really cool, but I'm sort of scared to like, like if I have a kind of not that great college experience and it's the same not that great college experience that everyone had, Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I'm where everybody else is. (laughs) But if I do this thing and it turns out to be really bad, then I'm one of a very tiny number of people who've had this terrible experience. And, um, and that's nothing, I mean, I'm not saying anything about, it. I think it's a great college. Um, I don't know if that was the right call or not, but that was my thinking. And I think mm-hmm. as a parent, it is really hard to say, I'm going to do the crazy thing that might not work because if you go, Hey, yeah, I think like, this will be a pretty mediocre experience. The same mediocre experience that everyone's having across the country. They turn out okay. They turn out okay. Exactly. Um, so that's a, um, so I think that's really tough. And it's also just, I mean, why would, I mean, I don't, I, I obsess over pedagogy. Why? I don't see why a parent would, you know, they're, they, they've got other things to do. They're not professionals in education. Um, it, it, it's totally understandable that they wouldn't be really looking at all this stuff and they can only, you know, oh, and, and that's something that I think about. I had, I had a moment where I thought, um, this eventually write a blog post about this if I ever have time, but I was thinking about this, about how kids specifically, find it really difficult to come in and sort of code switch into, into what we do. And I thought, you know, what kids do every day coming coming in and going, you know, switching to um, internalizing the, the values that we bring to it, the way, the approaches we take to school, um, the, the assumptions that we all have, that would be like me going to any given one of my kids' churches on Sunday and just fully participating in it. Mm-hmm. And that prospect terrifies me. I'd feel so uncomfortable and so out of place. And that's what we expect them to do every day. That's the switch that, that we're doing would be like us going to one of their churches and they're making or, or places of worship, synagogues, temples, whatever it might be. But kids are making this huge leap and parents are making this huge leap of going, Hey, you know, there's no reason that I should have internalized any of this stuff before coming here. Um, they all had, you know, most, very few parents had a non-traditional schooling experience. So we are asking them to take on this completely different set of assumptions that, you know, and we obsess over these things and we have, you know, professional development 
about it all the time and we discuss it and we talk about it and we go out, you know, after school and we talk about it more and we find it fascinating. But <laughs> there's no reason anyone else should, you know, I don't, I don't expect that a parent would. Um, and I, and so I think it is, they are going to kind of have these moments of going like, yeah, but you know, like I said about the Crimean war earlier, kind of going, yeah, but, but I mean, I did learn about the Crimean war and I didn't, <laughs> I don't remember any of it, but maybe learning it and forgetting it is important for reasons we don't understand. Right. And that is going to feel, it is going to feel scary when your kid comes home and they're talking about stuff that doesn't sound anything like your experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so the work that you're describing sounds engaging for students. It sounds uh, intellectually rewarding for teachers. Um, so I would think that there are many teachers out there who would prefer to be doing PBL in their own classrooms. You know, based on your experience, your observations, what barriers do you think are preventing them from trying this approach? I think, uh, I mean, I've, I've only taught at a high-tech high school, so I don't feel, I mean, I, I, I don't have enough um, of, a, of a nuanced understanding to say too much about that. What I think, but I, but I did, I mean, I, I've worked with a lot of teachers um, when, I, when I was working at the innovation unit, and I think there's a few different things. Um, preset curriculum is very difficult. Um, I mean, it takes, I, I, the, the stuff I'm working on this week I see my students for two hours a day and I've been spent been thinking, I just don't know how to make all this happen. There's so much that we want to cover. There's so much that we want to, that we want to do. There's just, I mean, I use the term cover. It covers not really, I remember there's so much that needs to happen in sequence in order to, for it to be a, at a point where we're doing the stuff that we want to be doing. Um, and that's really hard with two hours a day and literally no preset curriculum, nobody mm-hmm. telling me what to do. It's hard. So if I'm going, you know, like lots of people's situation of kind of saying, Hey, yeah, one day a week, you can, you have, you can plan what you want to do. That's exceptionally difficult. And I think, um, the fact that I have a total of 56 students all on the same team across two classes, that's really, really important to, to say, when I see here, people who are planning projects and they see over a hundred students a day, that's really, really difficult. Um, so I think having that, there's a lot of, there are a lot of design decisions that high tech, high tech, high tech guys an extremely carefully designed school. Um, and there are quite a few design decisions at, and at a leadership level at a, at the, the overall infrastructure of the school that, um, that make it possible. And it's still really hard. So I think there's a lot, there, there, there's a lot of infrastructure stuff that is not designed for project-based learning that is in fact very difficult to shift. It sounds like the work is somewhat demanding, although worth it in your opinion. Um, And I'm hearing you say it's a lot easier to do this kind of work when you're surrounded by teachers who are sharing your experience and the school has been designed to, uh, to foster that model, right? It would be hard for teachers to work in isolation. Yeah. And I, what I say is, um, you know, our problems are the right problem. One of the things that I find when I talk to a lot of teachers is that there's like, there's stuff that has nothing to do with education being hard Mm -hmm. that they need to worry about that they're, you know, that they're worrying about the fact they're getting huge amounts of pressure about standardized tests and no one's telling them, Hey, this standardized test is definitely the most valuable thing for a student who's going to be, you know, entering an uncertain 21st century economy and or massive um, global upheaval due to global warming. 
Um, you know, that's definitely the best thing to do. They're saying this is coming down from above and I just have to deal with this. Everything, all of my worries, all the things that I need to worry about are about how I give the best possible education to a group of students. And that is unbelievably difficult. And I can't imagine doing this job if I was also dealing with a bunch of stuff that I thought was stupid. Mm-hmm. You know, that I think that's one of the really, it, it's never not, it's never, it's never not tough. But it's tough for the right reasons. Alec, uh, I've taken up a lot of your time today, so I'll just ask you one more question. Uh, what are you working on right now? So we just started reading The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, and we are we're, we are actually doing a project that's going to, um, this by Sherman Alexi, fantastic book. We're doing a project that's going to culminate in a performance devised by the students of lots of various works um, responding to the book and also to the question, what tribes do I belong to? Um, very deliberately, the, um, the plural of tribes. And we are really delving into questions of belonging, belonging in a positive sense, in a negative sense. Right now, I mean, the fact that so many teenagers we know from around the world are, are traveling to Syria to join ISIS is something that, I mean, is, is mind-boggling, I think, for almost everybody, um, you know, gang Gang issues, gang culture is still very much a, you know, a concern in Southern California, something people are conscious of, that belonging in the social nature of identity is something that often leads to really, really awful stuff. I think possibly for teenagers more so than people at any other age. And we're really going to be exploring identity and belonging in its most positive and most negative lights and creating a performance based on that. I, I think the issue of identity is hugely relevant for for teenagers. Um, So it sounds like a great project. Dr. Alec Patton, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Hey, thank you very much. Take care. You too.